0: What we are going to do this morning together is we're going to focus on the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And last week, Kent focused on the first. And so what I'd like for us to do, I want you to, to grab your Bibles and turn with me this morning in the book of Acts as we invite the Holy Spirit to help us hear from His Word this morning. And I guess it's my goal that each of us would really walk out of here this morning with a deeper understanding of what God really wants to say to us today today especially in light of the call that He's placed upon our lives as an expression of His body, the local church, to to love the Cedar Rapids area. So turn with me in your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to start with verse 26. This is where Paul starts the second missionary journey. And if we can, rather than read through these three chapters, I've been meditating on this for a while, and I've just gleaned three truths from three of the stories that are contained in these passages of Scripture. And if you'll allow me this morning, I want to just share with you some of the truths that I've gleaned from what I believe is a missionary's heart. And when we look at the Apostle Paul, this is the kind of man that he was. And I don't know of a better example of someone who illustrates the vision that we subscribe to here at Cedar Hills, we say that we believe that the best way to fulfill the Great Commission, that's to tell others about Jesus, is to fulfill the Great Commandment by learning to actually live life with others and to love them fully the way that Jesus would. And the Apostle Paul, I think, is a great example of that. And I hope that as we look at these truths, it will better equip us to be local missionaries right where God has planted us today, and to love the Cedar Rapids area. Um, In fact, when I think of Paul, and I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 9, when Jesus looked at his disciples one day and he said, he said, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech or ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. And when I look at Paul's life, When I ask God to help me see into the heart of this great missionary, in in my eyes I I see a man whose life was a sermon that lived that out. Everywhere that he went, I think Paul was sizing up where people were in the the continuum of knowing Jesus. And I guess I've kind of been blessed or, or cursed with that, depending on what side of the fence you're on. I can't go on vacation. I can't go out at night. I can't be with people without wondering where they really are with Jesus Christ. And so I've just asked God to use my life in every one of those situations, even if I'm having dinner with somebody for the first time. It's the switch that you just can't shut off. The Bible says in Romans eleven twenty nine that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. They're without repentance. That God doesn't make mistakes. When God issues divine calls, they're divine calls. And I believe there's an expectation from the divine end that God really expects us to live that out and live into that. And we're called to love people. God's planted us right here in the Cedar Rapids area, and my goodness, we have an unbelievable opportunity to touch the lives of people. Um, the other thing that I think Paul's life illustrates is the response to the call of surrendering one's life with an understanding of all of the demands that is placed upon a person when they do that. He doesn't whine that things aren't as they used to be. He doesn't complain when the going gets tough. In fact, he writes that in my weakest state, that's when I experience God's greatest strengths in in ministry. He doesn't gripe that he's overworked and underpaid. In fact, he, he works to support himself so that nobody could ever accuse him of being a hireling. And he was a tent maker, so he paid his own way. And then sometime later, after the first missionary journey, in verse 36 of chapter 15, Paul's heart, I think, is stirred. And the story tells us that Paul looks at Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and this is what he says. He says, let's go back and visit the brothers and the sisters in all of the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, and let's see how they are doing. I want us to understand something here. Uh, This was no small undertaking. This wasn't a one or two week vacation. This turned out to be kind of a Gilligan's Island tour. It really, it was a, what was meant to be three, hour, three hours ended up being over three years. And it was a journey that God would use mightily, unknown to Paul, to literally open the doors to the West and bring evangelization of the gospel to Europe. And he'd be gone for three years and find himself in some unbelievable situations, difficult situations, that for us, I think, illustrate... The heartbeat of the Father toward missions. And it also shows us the transformed heart of of the man named Saul who God would continue to work within and transform and change into the missionary that we would come to know as the Apostle Paul. And he was changed from being the chief prosecutor of the church to the chief defender of it. I mean, he switched teams completely. And it's this change. This change in the heart of this once hardened but passionate Pharisee that I hope we're able to glean some truths from that will really help us learn to be more effective missionaries in the Cedar Rapids area that God's calling us to love. If you love Cedar Rapids, say, I love this city. Oh, come on, guys. I'm I'm just here to tell you, I love you, but man, that was weak. I mean, if you love Cedar Rapids, say, I love this city. Well, oh, that's pretty good. I'll let you pass on that. Alan's a professor here. That was a passing grade, wasn't it, Alan? Okay, well, we'll give you a C plus on that one. Well, the first truth that um, I was able to glean from the heart of this great missionary was was that Paul loved those who had come to Christ underneath his ministry so much that it was important enough with him to stay connected with them. And one of the things that Paul's idea of staying connected speaks to me as this biblical sense of of belonging to one another, this genuine sense of connectedness that embraces the idea that we really are our brother's keeper. And no matter how strong the cultural influences may be, wherever our worlds are or whatever they may be, this sense of belonging to one another demonstrates and reminds us that, that we're not alone. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you're not alone. And that's good news. That's one of the greatest things to be able to discover in life is that God never intended for us to do life alone. We're connected one to the other. And whether we accept this truth or not, the actions that we make affect the people sitting next to us. The decisions that we make, the behaviors that, that we exhibit, the lifestyles that we choose to embrace, all of these impact us. And if they're impacting me, then they're impacting you. The Bible's idea of loving one another includes being connected to a community of believers who actually own this value of belonging so much that they're willing to invest the effort to care and to stay connected to one another. They're going to make room in their lives to get together, to connect and stay connected. And and for me, this is really where the rubber begins to hit the road. And I, I think the reason, desi- the reason Jesus designed the body of Christ to operate like this is because He knew that in life that we were going to have some struggles. I think Jesus knew that you and I were going to experience loss and all of the burden that comes with that. I think He knew that we were going to have to bear the burden that sometimes comes with grief and death. I think He knew that there were going to be situations in our life, and Randy alluded to this earlier, the, of great disappointment. And that without the loving connection of someone who connects to us and loves us, it launches launch us into great periods of despair in our lives. And I know that some of you can identify with that. But here's the good news. Everybody say good news. Jesus said, fear not. He said, fear not, for I've overcome the world. And one of the ways that, well, just one of the ways that we're able to stand against the things that the world throws at us is by knowing and experiencing the love that we get from others in the body of Christ. We we get to hear your stories. We get to hear your personal testimonies. You get to share the wisdom with us that you've gleaned from life. And when we live connected with one another like that, it strengthens us, it builds us up, and it strengthens us, brings us to a point where we're able to care for one another. the life of this man named Paul shares with us that a missionary's love Love's enough to get connected and stay connected. Even though staying connected takes great effort. And let me tell you a little secret. You and the person that you're sitting next to, you're worth the effort. I want you to raise your hands and say, fear not. Come on. Now take your right hand and put it on the person next to you and look at them and say, you're worth it. See, I accomplished two things. I got reformed people to raise their hand and touch their neighbor, and touch their neighbor sitting next to them. Hallelujah. Leah, take note of that. Um, but it also uh, poses a question before us, because this is what we're called to. We're called to get connected and stay connected. We're called to love enough to where we make that choice. We own that value. But the question that I have is. What are the things in our lives that really compete and oftentimes win out in our lives over the call that God has on our lives to love one another? What are those things in our lives that are competing for the time that we can spend together? The second truth that I was able to glean from my reflections on Paul's missionary's journey and as I looked into the missionary's heart... uh, has to deal with learning how to trust the hand of God to lead so that in my life I'm led to fields that are ripe for harvest. And if you could turn with me to Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 13, we see this Paul has made this plan to uh, to expand this, this, this missionary tour. And the Bible says that, he and Silas turned northward, and they traveled up through Phrygia and Galatia, and that it was here that Paul gets a wrench thrown into his works. He's, now remember, this guy's a Pharisee. He's put together a, probably a very meticulous plan. And what my understanding of Paul is that from his Jewish tradition, I, I, I just see him as a guy that dotted the I's and crossed all the T's, and it leads me to conclude that he was a highly organized man, and one who, that, when he put a plan together, could probably be counted on executing it quite well. At least until something or someone threw a wrench into his works. He'd already had that happen once. Remember when he launched the persecution against the church? Then God threw a wrench into his works and he had a face-to-face with Jesus. Now he's working for Jesus and he's put together this great missionary plan and he's wanting to go to Bithynia. And the Bible says one night while staying in Galatia, with plans already made to travel along the Black Sea to Bithynia, the hand of the God... The Lord blocked them and prevented them from preaching the gospel in Asia. And in verse 6 of chapter 16 and following, we're told that as they passed through Phrygia and the Galatian region, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, if you're like me, these are a couple of passages of Scripture that when I've read them, I've thought, why on earth would God ever prevent somebody from telling others about Jesus? And after they came to Mysia. They were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And, and it's here, in a vision, that the Lord appeared to Paul that night and sh- showed him a man from Macedonia standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. The Bible says that when he had seen the vision immediately, he sought to go to Macedonia, hear this, concluding, concluding that God, the wrench in the works of Paul's plans, had now called him to preach the gospel in Macedonia and not Bithynia. I've been in ministry long enough to know that sometimes the best of plans that we come up with can get in the way of the way. And I know that when I look out over this worship center this morning, I know a number of you, and I consider you a lot smarter than me. I think a lot of you are way above the the line of average intelligence, and I I know that your thoughts are probably already over the place, analyzing the possibilities behind the reasoning of Jesus, not allowing Paul and Silas to to preach the gospel. And while I don't have a definitive answer for that, I I do want to invite you to allow me to share with you just some common observations that I've made in the reading of Scripture and... uh, that I see in the lives of men and women throughout the Bible, where the Spirit of God accomplishes extraordinary things for the kingdom through ordinary people, and they become big wins for the kingdom. And it's based on this simple observation that I believe to be true. And, and here it is. Are you ready? It's in your sermon notes, so you don't have to write it down. The work of the Holy Spirit always includes an element of mystery. Always. And I think the reason that our plans don't always work out is, hey, guess what? God's already got a plan. He's the one that exists in the past, present, and future simultaneously. He's the one who's declared the end from the beginning. He's already got a plan. He's got a plan for you to get in. He's got a plan for you to get out. Or He's got a plan for you to stay and endure. I think one of the things that I've learned in life is that God does not relinquish control to anybody. He alone is sovereign. He alone is Lord. 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah comes before Ahab one day, and he says, hey, not a drop of dew will touch this grass because of Israel's sin for three years. And for three years, man, uh, a drought sets in, and then a famine sets in. And three years go by, and one day, uh, Obadiah's wandering out through the fields and, and he was a lover of Elijah and a keeper of the prophets and he ran into Elijah and Elijah said, hey, I want you to go back to Ahab and I want you to tell him that, uh, that it's going to rain, that God's going to bring rain, he's going to bring an end to the drought, he's going to bring an end to the famine. And um, Obadiah looks at him and he says, are, are you kidding me, Elijah? This is what he says. You want, me, you want me to go before Ahab representing you? He said, but I know you. I know the way that the Spirit of God sometimes works. It'll come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you someplace that I don't know. So that when I go tell Ahab, and if it doesn't rain, then he's going to kill me. Now this story has a lot more to say, but one thing it does stress is the mystery that God reserves to share things when he chooses. There's always this element of mystery when God works. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he's talking about the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit at new birth, and this is his conversation with Nicodemus. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, and lest one is born of the water and the Spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. He says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. And don't be amazed that I said to you that you must be born again. Now listen to this, and then he closes with verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. This is representative of the move of the Spirit of God. This is my pneumatology. The wind blows where it wishes, where he wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it is going. So too is everyone who is born by the Spirit of God. Listen. Listen. Jesus came in the flesh, and they missed him. God came in the winds of Pentecost, and they missed him. And one of the things that I've learned from this missionary's heart is that when the Spirit of God moves, there's a window of opportunity. And it's important for us to move within that window, or it's possible to miss the opportunity. It's true that God's always in control and that He always reserves an element of mystery for Himself. And someone once said, and I've, I've tried to find the source for this and I've never been able to locate it, that mystery marks the footprint of the divine. But here's the good news everybody say good news? We get to rest in that. We get to rest and the sovereign hand and control of God. We can live with the assurance that even though the plans that we sometimes come up with might not always be God's plans, no matter how brilliant they may be, God still chooses to use people like us. Amen? Paul chose Bithynia. God chose Macedonia. And in the end, Paul chose God's way. The third truth that, the final truth that I glean from these chapters, that I think we can focus our lives upon, is that when I read Paul's missionary journeys, I see a man who counted the cost and was compelled to tell the story anyway. And I think Paul's sermon on Mars Hill is very apropos our modern culture. You know, when I was in the Navy, we deployed regularly for 45 days at a time into Athens. And sadly, I wasn't serving the Lord then, or the Areopagus would have meant a whole lot more to me uh, than as as it does now. If you turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 23, we're going to find the focus verse that I think has just kind of governed this whole lesson for me, because Paul operates with a worldview and a theological perspective that people who are worshiping other gods are worshiping in ignorance. And he comes into a place called the Areopagus, just full of hundreds of altars. In fact, Athens was called the capital of the gods. When he came into Athens that day, he was walking through, and the Bible tells us that he was provoked in his spirit because of all the idolatry. It bothered him. I think he probably struggled with some of the Pharisee thing inside of him. I think he probably had an understanding of idol worship that was probably well, far superior to most, and it bothered him. But he, he kept that tucked inside, and he walked through, and he finally came across a, uh, an altar to the unknown God. Now, here's something you might not know about the unknown God. <laughs> About 500 years before Paul ever walked through the Areopagus or on Mars Hill, Athens had a plague that just decimated the city. And so they got all of the philosophers together. They got all of the religious people together. And they began to just kind of have a powwow and try to discuss what was causing the plague. And they came up with the conclusion that they must have offended one of the gods. So the remedy was, let's, let's discover which God we've offended, let's, let's apologize, let's appease him, and he'll, he'll relinquish the plague and we'll be able to go on with life. And so they did that. But they couldn't discover any God that they'd offended, so they defended, so they sent for an outside source. They outsourced a guy from Cyrus who came in, a guy by the name of Epimedes, I think is the way that you say his name. And he came in, and this was his conclusion. He concluded that, no, you haven't offended any of your gods. It's an unknown god that you've offended. And so he said, this is how we're going to tell what the god is. We're going to take these choice sheep of many colors that I have, and we're going to keep them in a pen for a few days and make sure that they're really hungry, and then we're going to release them out in the the lush green fields of Mars Hill. And normal sheep are going to eat because they're hungry. But we will know the God that we've offended because the sheep will refuse to eat and they'll lie down and we'll know because of the unnatural behavior that this is the God that they've offended. So they let all the sheep out and sure enough, several of them lied down and didn't eat. And every place that a sheep lied down, they built an altar to an unknown God. And they'd been there for centuries. There may have been actually some more there, but at least one was there the day that Paul walked through. And this is a great missiological approach. And I think there's something that we can really learn from Paul here. The first thing that he did is he, he complimented them on their religious convictions, their religious beliefs. And I think we live in a world today where Christianity is way under attack. And I just want to encourage you, I think one of the lessons we can learn for learning to be a missionary and share Jesus and love people authentically is by honoring them, not their belief system. Honoring them respecting them loving them but love a missionary's love counts the cost and it tells the truth anyway you see I I just happen to believe I'm not much for political correctness I'm really not because I don't think I can always be authentic And I have some extremely difficult situations in my life where I've had to take a position to disagree with people I love deeply. And we still have good relationships. Because I I love them. They know that I love them. They know that there's nothing they could ever do, nothing they could ever believe, nothing they could ever say, even if it meant rejecting me, that would change my love for them. So I think Paul's missiological approach was that I'm going to respect people. God loves them. I believe that when Paul looked at people, he saw people as the beloved of God. Do we? Do we really see people as the beloved of God? Who may be spiritual, but might be worshiping in ignorance. So Paul uses this launch pad. He finds a place of commonality with which he can connect with them. And he commends them for their religious fervor, for their philosophical beliefs. And then he he finds this altar to this unknown God and he compliments them on that. And he says, hey, I'm here to tell you, the God that you worship in ignorance, I'm here to explain Him to you. Listen to this. And he goes all the way back to creation. It talks about the heartbeat of the Father who created everything that is. And then, when man sinned, he loved us so much that he even provided a way to atone for the sins of humanity. And that if you believe in Jesus and his resurrection, you'll have life ever after. Now, see, he, he brought the JC question in to it. So he was sensitive to the current values that they owned, he found a common connection to share. And God's Spirit still compelled him to share Jesus. So when I look at this missionary's heart, here's what I see. I see a man who loved enough to get connected and stay connected. I see a man who Didn't want to waste time and was about making plans, but always allowed room for the Spirit of God to move in his life to change the plans. And if you've been in the church very long, you know that we have to change. And then finally, he was a man who counted the cost and told the truth. He told the story, the whole story. And everywhere that he went, some people looked at him like, right, dude, checked out. We don't deal with rejection very well. But everywhere that he went, people believed. So people are always going to reject the story and some people are always going to accept it. So don't let that stand in the way of you lovingly telling the truth. Amen? I want to teach you another song this week will you let me do that and uh, how many of you remember when Robin Mark was here two years ago and three years ago this is one of his songs and you're going to I promise you I need your help is this on check one two I haven't done this in a while What's going on? Is it on? Got me? Thank you. It's called When It's All Been Said and Done. And it's a song that just speaks to my heart. What we just heard in the message. It's a summary of of what we do with our life. That really what matters in the end is did we live our life to speak for truth. Just join in if you know it and join in when you kind of catch it.
1: When it's all been said and done There is just one thing that matters Did I live my life to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? Did I live my life for you? When it's all been said and done, all my treasures will. Only what I've done for love's reward will stand the test of time will stand the test of time I will always You've shown me heavens, my true home, when it's all been said and done. You're my life when my life is done. Lord, your mercy it is so great that you look beyond. And find to rest gold In my reclaim Turning sinners into saints Turning sinners into saints When it's all been said and done There is just one thing did I live my life? To live for truth? Did I live my life?